I think definitely people need to talk about death and dying more with each other. And it's really tough and it's kind of taboo. And we don't, we're sort of like in denial about our own death all the time that we think we're immortal, but bad things happen and accidents happen, cancer happens, illness happens. And so I would, I guess, suggest to everyone to really talk with their families before they're sick, before anything about, you know, what maybe some of your wishes would be if you become like so sick that let's say your heart would stop or you would stop breathing. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Alexandra Glazos. Alexandra is a registered nurse in transplant, hepatobiliary, and ENT surgery, and she completed her master's degree in advanced clinical practice nursing at McGill University. She also teaches chronic illness and palliative care at the undergraduate level. Today, Alexandra came by the cafe to talk to us about her nursing experiences, and we also dive a bit deeper into palliative care and transplants. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, Nikita. It's good to see you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Alex. I am a nurse. I work at the bedside on the um, surgical floor at the McGill University Health Center in Montreal. It's a triple specialty unit. So there's transplants, so like kidney, livers, and hepatobiliary surgeries. So that's like everything in your stomach area you can think of. So like cancers and blockages of your liver, your pancreas. And then the uh, other section is people who need ears, nose, and throat surgeries. So again, mainly cancer diagnosis. I also teach chronic illness and palliative care at the nursing undergraduate level at McGill, and I love to teach. I have a a love-hate relationship with my nursing job. (laughs) Best job ever, worst job ever. I have a wonderful family. I love yoga, working out. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Wonderful. Thank you. Can you tell us what appealed to you about nursing? At first, it wasn't really something I was drawn to originally. I did uh, health science and CGEP and then a little bit of biology in university. And I mean, I was just, I was kind of bored (laughs) to be honest. Like I, I love science and anatomy and biology and all that, but like studying plant reproduction, like in a lab, not my thing, bless those who do. But so I was looking at programs and I was just kind of lost. And I was like, oh, nursing, like that could be something, but it really only turned into a passion once I, once I started school, once I started my stages and yeah, that it's something that definitely I realized very quickly aligns more with sort of who I am as a person. And you said you have a love-hate relationship. That's <laughs> <Tell us> why. <laughs> oh my gosh. Nursing. Listen up, everyone. Go into nursing. It is the best job ever, but it's the worst. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's a, yeah. I mean, it's the best job ever. Like I work with people, amazing people every day. Like just the team members that I work with, like the, the doctors, the PABs, the, everyone, everyone I work with is amazing. I get to hear so many stories of patients and families and I get to help them heal. I get to help them sort of you know, work towards a new life after a transplant. I can help them die with dignity. It's it's incredibly rewarding work, not monetarily rewarding, I would say, but definitely intrinsically rewarding. So yeah, I mean, it's the best job. Like I really see how like on a daily basis, my actions really do help make a difference. They really help people. It makes you appreciate life. Like it makes me really appreciate my health, my family. 
So it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's the best job. It's the best job ever, (laughs) but it's so hard. It's so hard. It's the hardest job. It's a profession where you really have a lot of responsibility, like both like legally, I guess. And, but also just morally, like you want your patients to do well, but so there's, there's so much responsibility. It makes it really hard, but there's kind of little, I would say like extrinsic rewards like monetary there's little control like you you have a lot of responsibility but little control like almost daily I end up saying to my patients uh, you know okay so don't shoot the messenger but you know your test is canceled or you know don't shoot the messenger but so it can be really hard to like deal with sort of um, the disappointment or the anger or the emotion of patients on a daily basis just because of the nature of the hospital setting and stuff. So, and I mean, obviously, yeah, we're short-staffed, we're this, we're that, like that's kind of goes with it, but yeah, it's the best job. It's just the worst job, but it's the best. <laughs> it's really hard. It's hard physically on the body also. It's hard, you know, many of these patients are like, they're really going through like the worst moments of their life. So it's, you're kind of bearing witness to all that. It's, it's tough. It's really tough. You have to like find ways to cope and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I get it the way you say it. It's tough, but it's rewarding. Yeah. Like the highs are so high and the lows can, can be quite low, but you just really need to build resilience, but it kind of goes hand in hand. Like it, you you can rarely have like those highs without kind of the accompanying lows, I find. So, yeah. How do you deal with the tough days? Good question. I rely a lot on, I would say my, the other nurses that I work with. So conversations with other healthcare professionals who kind of know what you're going through. It's I mean, I, I talked to my partner about it and everything, but people who don't really work there or like do the nursing job don't always really grasp what you're saying, where I could just say like a simple, like, how's your day going? I could just say one thing, you know, and they'll be like, oh, I know, I know. And so for me, I guess talking uh, and like living the emotion really helps me a lot where when I started nursing, you know, I kind of had the impression that I had to distance myself emotionally. And that's sort of what I was taught, I would say. And that's kind of the, the, what we're, what we're told to do, but I found myself sort of repressing those emotions. Like they have to come, we're human beings. Like we're going to experience hard things, emotional things. When patients get angry at me, like I feel anger, like I get upset too, you know? So I mean, I, I deal with it in a certain way with my patient, but then I have to sort of go out on the side and then like let it out else, like in a different way, because, you know, or else, you know, it comes out in different ways. You can't sleep. You have a poor relationship with food. Like it, it will come out somehow. So I just, I try and talk it out. I, I have like a routine where I come home from work and then I, I get in the shower and then in the shower, I allow myself to like, ah, to like let it all out <laughs> and then, or cry or, and then it's like, when I'm out of the shower, then, okay, you're, you, you move on, you put your day behind you. But I mean, it's, it's tough, like it's tough, but yeah. So I, I think relying on, on other nurses, relying on your partner. I talk, talk a lot about what I'm experiencing. Yeah. And yoga meditation honestly you say it's tough which of course it is but now I'm thinking like how does that (laughs) how does the toughness manifest in the is it harder like when we see it on the news it looks really like you guys are yeah (laughs) oh gosh yeah well I mean the news (laughs) yes and no I mean I can really only speak to my own personal experience on the transplant floor or teaching. I can't really speak for like those who are working in ERs or ICUs, for example. So that must be totally different. Like I I have friends who work in those settings and it was, especially during the first wave, like it was, 
quite challenging. Is it as bad as, <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I think for me, in my personal experience, it manifests in different ways where, for example, the patients on our unit, uh, we have a little bit less access to intensive care beds. So we end up needing to kind of manage, the patients are already very, very sick on our unit. It's a very heavy, heavy unit. But when things start to go poorly, where previously we kind of were able to, you know, let's say within the next couple of hours, transfer them to a more critical care setting and then like regroup, refocus, and they were kind of taken care of in the ICU. Um, we're having to manage that a little bit more on our floor, which makes it really tough because it makes it so that other patients, like obviously you have to focus most of your time on there. And then it's more difficult to split your time and to give equal care to to other patients. So that would be like one way. I think another way that it, it is really tough was like visitation hours. And for a while, visits were just completely stopped. And I mean, there's pros and cons to that. I have my own personal <laughs> opinion about it, but that was very, very difficult for the staff managing all the phone calls and everything for the patients. It was, it was horrible. It was, that was horrible. That was probably the worst part. And I also imagine probably not only for the patients, but then to the family members, because if everyone's oh. so sick and they want to connect with their loved ones and they can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I guess because you can work on such an emotional floor mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned it, sometimes it's possible that you know, you have to give them bad news or your test has been rescheduled or mm -hmm. sometimes someone might get upset at you. How do you recenter yourself during those times? I really try to, so this is something I've had to work on a lot is to let go of, like, just to not take things personally. I have to really remember that this is not about me in the slightest. Like, it's not a personal thing to her, even if it can feel very personal sometimes. <laughs> it's not, it's not about me. It's, they're stressed. They are trying to find out if, you know, their cancer has progressed. They are, like, these are horrific moments that these patients and families are living. It's the, some of the worst moments of their life, probably, potentially. And I think sometimes I just try to remember, and it, it's not easy. Like it's not, I'm not perfect at all by far, but I try to remember I get to go home at the end of the day and they don't. So I just sort of take a step back and try and think about that and just, okay, just, you know, try and yeah, try and remember that they're really going through a tough time. And I have my health. I have my family. I'm walking out the door at 7.30 at night, you know? So it's tough. I mean, I have good moments and bad moments, but yeah, I would say that's how I kind of try to recenter myself. And then if things do go kind of, you know, crooked, just to not be afraid to like name it and to, you know, listen, like, um, you know, we had that encounter 15 minutes ago. Can we just, can we talk about it? I don't want us to be on a bad footing. I think you just got to name it and not let it fester. And like 98% of the time it ends up being fine. Like they'll break down and like, I'm so sorry to me to yell at you. And like, I'm not, I don't know. It's okay. Like, so yeah, it's just communication. I think communication I love that perspective. That's mm. really nice. At the end of the day, you get to go home and that you also sometimes approach it. That's really cool. Especially when you're dealing with really sick patients. Are there things that you've observed over time that, maybe you wish patients would do or conversations that they should probably be having mm. with their families that you see don't happen. Yeah. I think definitely people need to talk about death and dying more with each other. And it's really tough and it's kind of taboo. And 
we don't, we're sort of like in denial about our own death all the time that we think we're immortal, but bad things happen and accidents happen, cancer happens, illness happens. And so I would, I guess, suggest to everyone to really talk with their families before they're sick, before anything about, you know, what maybe some of your wishes would be if you become like so sick that let's say your heart would stop or you would stop breathing. What do you, what do you want the healthcare providers to do? And obviously this is like case dependent, right? The 28 year old who comes in from a car accident, like they're going to do everything. Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's, it's very case specific, but I find it it tough. I, I really see patients and families struggling with decisions about care when they're kind of in the midst of the emotion. So it's nice to kind of have a, a perspective of like, you know what, me and my father actually talked about this. And he said that, you know, he would want full interventions no matter what, or we talked about this and he said like, look, I don't want to be on a respirator. So you know, do what you can to help him, but, you know, maybe not that. And just, it's good to talk to your family members about that stuff because it really helps guide care and it, it, it'll help you, I guess, suffer less, I would say in a way, because I find that we often torture people until the very last second and it kills the nurses who have to physically do it. So yeah, that would be, I think one thing that could prepare people better just in general about their health. That's hard. That's really hard. It is hard. Do you have any thoughts on how to bring that conversation up? One thing that I guess I can think about what I've sort of talked about with my family or even questions that I've asked my patients, you know, where would you like to die? Where, if, if you were in a perfect world, where would you like to die? You know, and some people would say like, oh, I would rather be in a hospital where I know that everyone is, you know, doing everything, like taking care of me and kind of like making sure I'm not in pain and make sure. And then other people would say like, I really would love to die at home in my bed. And so there's, it's just these small kind of questions about death and dying. Let's just have conversations about it to sort of ease the process when it happens to make it less taboo, Mm -hmm. to make it less taboo, um, less scary, maybe. Less taboo because that it certainly is. Let's talk about some myths and misconceptions of Mm -hmm death and dying or palliative care? Are there mm-hmm. anything you'd like to dispel? I think um, maybe one of the main ones that kind of comes up is um, you don't really have to be in the last moments of your life to be considered a palliative patient or to uh, have access to palliative care services, which can also be at home. I mean, again, depending on where you live in Montreal, like depending on the CLSC that's closest to you, some have better palliative care services than the others. So like I'm speaking from a perspective of privileged Montreal (laughs) setting, you know, it's very different in rural settings and everything, but uh, yeah, I would say that, so you have access to palliative care services, even if you're maybe more in the last like three months or even a year of your life or so palliative care can also be, they are really like the physicians who work in palliative care are experts in pain management. Right. So sometimes the idea of like switching to palliative care, it doesn't have to be this drastic sort of like, as you're passing away thing, actually the sooner that the palliative care team can be involved in your care of like managing your cancer pain or managing your nausea, helping you like have a better appetite, the more comfortable you'll be. Right. And so I would say that a myth about palliative care is that it has to be final, final right away. And that it also has to be that it's like, we're not doing anything for you anymore everything's done. We go from a hundred to zero and that's really not true. Palliative care is about shifting the goals of care. 
So we move away from focusing on curing despite pain and discomfort, which is something we don't do. So for example, like you have a, I don't know, a 40 year old who has a car accident who comes to, into the eMERGE and we have to reset their leg and do all this. Well, like not me, but <laughs> they have to do all these crazy things and, you know, they have to act quickly and maybe the patient's going to be in pain when it's happening. And it's like, well, sorry, bud, this is happening. Like we, we will prioritize uh, saving a person versus sort of pain. Pain is important, but like the, the suffering we will, I guess, be more okay with, I guess, <laughs> in a way where in, in palliative care, the goals kind of just shift where we're moving away from a solely curative approach to adopting more measures that bring comfort. So, you know, taking someone's blood pressure like three, four times a day, that's actually not a fun thing. Like, I don't know if anyone's had a blood pressure taken, but it hurts. It, it hurts. Like, it's not fun getting your finger poked for like sugar. It's like, why are we doing this? Why am I checking your sugar? Like this. So it, there's certain contexts that we move away from that. We start uh, um, bringing in different medications and different approaches to help with comfort. So we're just shifting the goals of care. So it's not, it's not that it's all or nothing. It's not, well, we're done taking care of you. We're just going to change the way we take care of you. Thank you yeah. for explaining that. I love that. What about some myths and misconceptions about nursing in general? Oh, that's good. I mean, there's a few that come to mind. I think, I guess the main thing that sort of flashes in my mind is that nursing is very task oriented. So, you know, there are tasks involved, but nursing is just so much more than that. So I've had patients say to me um, when they're going home and they're being discharged, uh, like, wow, I had no idea that this is what nursing is or what nurses do. And I think what they're referring to is that idea that, you know, nurses take your bloods and do your vital signs and give you your pills. And, but your nurse, at least where I work is like literally the, like the centerpiece of your care. So they make sure things get done. They help you with everything from like, I'm helping patients connect to the Wi-Fi while like, you know, calling someone's pharmacy to make sure they have the new pill that they're going to be prescribed when they go home to, I mean, we've like rolled patients down to tests when transport's taking too long, like explaining all aspects of your care to you, uh, ensuring things get followed up on. Nursing is to like, to literally saving your life, like with our assessment skills and our communication with physicians and stuff. So nursing is just, it's, it's everything. Nursing is, is so much more than just tasks. So I think that that's kind of one big misconception about nursing. And then another one, I guess, uh, that comes to mind is people don't always know that nurses have a license to practice. You need to be licensed, you're a licensed professional, and that there can be like legal repercussions for nurses for doing something that could potentially harm a patient, even if it's prescribed. So your nurse is kind of considered your last line of defense in a way, which is kind of why we're, we're like annoyingly questioning everything on my unit. Like I think the nurses on my unit are known to just be so annoying with the physicians <laughs> because we're like, why, why are we doing, no, but what about that? Why, why are we doing this? And, you know, in a way, like if you can't explain to me why something should be done, or if I can't explain why I should be doing this, then I shouldn't be doing it. And I could be wrong a um, hundred times, you know, it's not about the ego, but the one time that you were right and you didn't say something, there could be repercussions to the patient. So it only takes once, you know, like towards the beginning of my career, I remember I almost gave like a pretty heavy duty transplant IV medication to a patient that they was prescribed, but they weren't supposed to get, they'd already received it actually. And 
And it got through a few people. It got through the physician, it got through the pharmacist, it got through the more senior nurse that I was with at the time. And luckily the patient, it got caught beforehand. He didn't, he didn't get it. We call that like a near miss. We write an incident report, like these things happen, like mistakes do happen, but I'll never forget that. Like I will never forget that near miss. And I remember, I will always remember a senior physician told me, I don't care what was prescribed. You should have known better. And so that hit me like, oh my gosh, I cried so much. You have no idea. <laughs> so it, it makes you really attuned to kind of like your responsibility to the patient. But I mean, to be honest though, like on the flip side, it also made me reflect on how that's not really fair um, to that nurses carry a lot of that burden without so much the reward, like the monetary in particular, I would say, but maybe the recognition as well of that like key player role that we have. So yeah, that would be another myth. Like you nurses are a very important part of your care and it's a lot of background. You don't see the things that get caught, the things that, the small things, nothing major, like things that need to be followed up on that need to be addressed or changed. or, Oh, are you, are you sure that, you know, we should maybe take this approach instead of that, you know, for, you know, newer physicians coming in. And so, yeah, so that uh, nurses are a really important part of your care. I love my job. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that story. That was really fascinating. I loved it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that nursing is not necessarily monetarily rewarding, Mm. but Quebec has recently announced all sorts of grand incentives for nurses Mm -hmm. if they come Mm -hmm. back into the system. Why do you think that's not working? Oh my goodness. I mean... Yeah, I guess this is like, you know, personal opinion or Mm -hmm. whatever. I think it's too late. I think Mm -hmm. it's too late. I think... You can't just throw money at people who are already burnt out. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's sort of like doing an, like never doing an oil change on your car and then things start to break down. Like it doesn't matter if you do three oil changes in a row, like it's too late. Like they're, it's, it's too late. So, I mean, everyone wants more money. Sure. Yes. But on average, anyways, the nurses that I talk to or myself, I don't think that nurses are intrinsically motivated by money more money for more work is more money for more missed family events and more missed dinners with friends and more missed opportunities it's it's not worth it it's not worth it I don't know I don't know yeah I don't think that I think that nurses what they want is more hands on deck and a better work-life balance and how do we do that is we need to raise the base salary of nurses in Quebec nurses in Quebec have the lowest average salary across the entire country. And I think that in order to attract nurses into the money attributes value to a profession, right? And so I think that is something that will attract more people into the profession and will more importantly, keep people in the profession is by raising the base salary of nurses and not just throwing these insane amounts of money that to be honest, I feel like I already deserve, like, I don't want to do more work for what you're giving me. I, I deserve this already for nurses are extremely underpaid for their expertise and what they contribute in the healthcare system. Yeah. That's nicely said. And I like your oil change analogy. It was very easy to visualize. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, yeah, I find it, it's, it's a bit too late. Nurses want work-life balance. They, they want more hands on deck. They don't, yes, we, we want more money. Uh, who doesn't want more money? But that's not the solution. In the context in which you work, example, palliative care or transplants, 
What are some common pitfalls that you see or ways that you wish patients could be more prepared? Yeah, I think in general, it might come down to just more communication, more conversations with your family. I think that that is like such a key thing. And then there's smaller things as well. Patients need to be sort of maybe less afraid to tell their physicians that they don't understand the explanations that they're getting. Often patients do feel intimidated a little bit. And so I guess I would encourage people to maybe write their questions down. Oftentimes the the physicians come around and this is in my context, right? This is like say on a surgical unit, for example. So there's a hundred different contexts, right? But the physicians will come around quite early in the morning, you know, maybe six o'clock in the morning. Talk, talk, talk. Good morning. Hi, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And you're you're trying to wake up. You're barely awake. And and then bam, they're gone. And they're they're gone all day because they're extremely busy. They're in surgery, they're in their clinics, they're, you know. And so I would encourage people to write their questions down on paper to to have something like, oh, I, I wanted to ask this. And I would also encourage people to ask their nurses questions where I often have families coming in and saying like, you know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I want to speak to the physician. And they uh, rightfully so, like if I was hospitalized, of course I would want to speak to my physician. The, the, <laughs> absolutely. That's that total and absolutely uh, reasonable request. And um, the physicians will come talk to you either uh, later in the day or family meeting or something like that. But Often I find myself asking like, oh, no problem. But what are, what are some of your questions? Like maybe I could help, you know, and to be honest, like 80 to 90% of the time I can answer the questions that they have and believe you me, like I'm never going to go off and say something that I'm not sure of, or, and I think you can trust that your nurse will be truthful to the best of their ability and to seek out answers when they don't know. So yeah, I would encourage people to not be shy to ask treatment plan questions to their nurses. We'll never discuss prognosis or we'll never give a diagnosis. Or, you know, if the patient went for a test and the physician hasn't come tell the patient the results of the test yet, I will never talk about that until the physician has, you know, discussed it. And then I'm, I'm there. I can talk about it afterwards and explain in more detail or what that means or whatever. But yeah, I would encourage people to talk to their nurses. Are there some recommendations that you give to patients or your family or your friends as they try to navigate the healthcare system? Yeah, I would, I would say to keep pushing, keep, don't necessarily just, okay, yes, nurse. Okay. Yes. Doctor, like ask why ask questions, you know, push, but follow your instincts. Like if, when you know something is wrong, you know, keep, keep at it. And I know that it really sucks to say that because it's putting so much pressure on the the patient, right. To just be better at describing what you're trying to, you know, that's horrible. But I would say just, yeah, keep pushing uh, when you have an instinct about something. This is like kind of a silly one, but I just, it popped into my head. Like if you're going to be going in for a surgery, if you're going in for an intervention, if you're going into the ER for something and you have a moment to grab your list of medications that you're already on, or even to bring in your, your, your dispo or your medications, I would say to do that, that can be very very helpful, but that's, that's a small little (laughs) detail that just popped into my mind. No, that's Um, great. That's helpful. Can you think of an example in which you saw someone successfully advocate for them? Yeah. I mean, I guess for this one, I can talk about more of a personal story. So I had mentioned earlier that my grandmother had spent a little bit of time in the hospital. So at the beginning of the pandemic, well, right before the pandemic. So in like January of 2020, and she's like a very young 80, you know, super, super young 80. So she's very healthy, like no health 
problems other than like, you know, she takes a thyroid pill type thing. She just, she really started to decline like so rapidly. Like she stopped eating. She was vomiting all the time. She couldn't move anymore. She lost so much weight. She was becoming delirious, dizzy. Like it was crazy in a matter of a couple months. And then like COVID hit and my mom took her to the eMERGE close to their place. And then, you know, kind of patched her up. Oh, her blood pressure is low. Give her a little bit of fluid, send her home. And you know, she's, she just, she has to eat. She just has to eat. And anyway, she ended up taking her a couple times to the eMERGE, probably three, four times and uh, to different emergent. And then I, you know, I told her to come to the Glen and um, similar situation, you know, kind of patched her up a little bit. And then she was doing a bit better, like after receiving lots of fluids and, and it's so funny. Like my grandma is hilarious. Like she, she looked like she was about to die at home actually. Like I, when I saw her for like the last time, when I told my mom to take her to the emergent to like, leave her there, like do not take her home. I was like, she's going to die like tonight, like this is it. And uh, anyway, so she ends up uh, taking her to the eMERGE and she just, she, she was like, look, like, isn't her life worth more than this? Like she needs to, you need to figure out what's going on with her. Mm -hmm. This is not something that has been like years ongoing. This is acute. It is it, we just want to know, is it cancer? Is it, what is it? Like there's something happening. And just because she's 80, it doesn't mean that you just patch her up and send her on her way. And so my mom, and I couldn't be there at the time because uh, COVID was a thing at that point. So my mom was the only one who could be with her at the eMERGE. Oh yeah. And that's what I want to say. My grandma, she's so funny. Like she looks like she's dying at home. She goes into the eMERGE, the doctor, you know, how are you doing? I'm great. How I eat. <laughs> I'm fine. Like, you know, never wants to be a bother. Like one of those bless yeah. her heart. And my mom is sitting there like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so funny. Anyhow, they ended up calling my mom back and saying, okay, well, like you can come pick her up. Like she's doing better. And my mom was like, no, like I am not taking her home. And my grandma lives with my mother. I'm not taking her home. I'm not doing it. You need to figure it out. And she said to the doctor, one of the doctors, she says, isn't her life worth more than this? And then the physician said, you're right. Yep. We're going to admit her. And I mean, it turns out she had like this adrenal insufficiency problem that now she takes one pill a day and like, she's bumping, like she's back to bingo. She's like walking, she's eating. She's gained so much weight. She's like a pie a day. I'm not kidding. I think that that's where, like, she would have died. She a hundred percent would have died. Like I, I saw her and I was like, oh my God, this is it. And, and now it's like, I have 10 more years with my grandma. And so I think like my mom did a really, really good job at pushing and at not like giving up. So yeah, now my grandma's great. Yeah. Great story. I'm glad to hear she's doing well and that everything worked out. That's a really great story of pushing actually. Isn't her life worth more than this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing you mentioned as well, Alexandra, is that you work in transplant and as a former Grey's Anatomy watcher. Oh Lord. <laughs> Me too. Until I started nursing and I was like, this is all my job. What are you doing? <laughs> One thing that stuck out was an episode mm. where someone was listed as an organ donor and the folks in the hospital needed an organ for someone else in there. And mm. so I can't remember what was the deal with the person who had a viable organ, but basically it seemed like they didn't want to give that person maximum possible care because, oh, but I have this other worthy person in here who needs this organ. Mm. And so how does transplant actually work? Because maybe there are other people like me who might be afraid that if I've actually indicated mm. that I'm an organ donor, that you might not try as hard because you've got someone else that <laughs> you want to give my yeah. organ to. How does that work? 
Yeah. Oh, Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> no, I think that's a totally common fear and a normal fear to have. So I would say that uh, there's a few safeguards that prevent that from happening. And I can speak a little bit about it, but, you know, obviously there's like physicians and nurses and Quebec who really are specialists in this. That's not really my specialty, but I can speak a little bit to it where, so for starters, the, there's two physicians separately that need to evaluate the person to ensure these are like neurologists, neurosurgeons, physicians in the ICU setting who need to evaluate the person separately and come to the same conclusion about their brain death. And so that's not just like one little test in one minute. These are, this is a multitude of different kinds of tests, like going through every reflex. There's, you know, MRI, there's different tests. I'm not hundred percent sure what they are, to be honest, but there's a multitude of tests to confirm a neurological brain death. Right. And so that's, that's like, I guess, one safeguard is that there does need to be two physicians who agree, who have the same agreement. Another thing I think that's kind of interesting that people don't really know and is not portrayed in Grey's Anatomy is that these two physicians who do this evaluation on this patient are in no way related to the transplant team. And so it's never a transplant surgeon or someone on the medical team of the person who needs the organ, who is making any type of decision about the eligibility of the person in the bed who had a stroke or a car accident where there was brainstem damage or whatever. And also another thing to consider is, for example, if the fear is that, um, well, we could declare this person brain dead and, and use their organs for the guy next door in the ICU. Well, that's also not how it works. So there's a registry where let's say someone in Sherbrooke might be giving their organs might be best matched with someone in Quebec city. And so it, there's kind of that entremise, the trans transplant Quebec who organizes all of that. And everything is incredibly confidential. There's no, you don't even really know, like the, the age of the patient or the, the sex of the patient or anything like that. When you get the organ, like it's so there's, it's very separate, very, very separate. So I think that that's another safeguard that like, really like our, our transplant surgeons, they uh, get a call saying, Oh, or, or let's say for example, our kidney nephrologists, like who follow the patients for kidney transplants, they will get a call saying, Oh, um, from transplant Quebec saying we have an organ for your patient. This person has no idea where it's coming from. Very different from what I saw on TV. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So it is that uh, there are some safeguards that prevent that from happening. Really cool. At what point do you find out if someone's an organ donor? I think mm-hmm. like when you opened a chart, does that just pop up? It doesn't. It doesn't. And again, so <laughs> I'm going to go a little bit surface on this just yeah. to not overstep what my knowledge, but the best way to find out is, so, I mean, I think everyone knows about signing the back of your healthcare card. So in general, uh, I would say that these nurses and physicians and family members have access to this person's wallet that's in the locker in oh, other yeah. bedside. So that's the main way that you also can sign up on the uh, RAMQ website to be an organ donor. And that Transplant Quebec has access to that to see if the, the person is an organ donor. But I would say that the best way to find out if someone is an organ donor is usually through the family. Okay. That's usually how it, how it goes. I would say that because honestly, whether or not someone is an organ donor, the family gets veto. They have control they have control over you, even in your death, like how ironic, but your family sort of takes ownership of uh, that decision when you can't make that decision. So 
but even if you've signed them back your card and if at, at the last moment your family says no then it won't happen so i think the most 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 important thing whether you sign your card or not is to discuss again coming back conversations with your family discuss with your family what your wishes are because they're the ones who are going to kind of give the okay or not really interesting yeah by working at the bedside I'm sure that you have so many memories so many interesting experiences is there one that stands out to you I mean yeah obviously there are so many and like so many patients that I work with that I will remember forever conversations that I've had with them you know that sometimes I've made like choices in my life based on like talks that we've had and stuff so I mean there's a lot of really memorable moments there's one patient in particular that I I think of she was a, a young woman she was 26 years old so at the at the time she was um close enough to my age and she had a very I won't give too many details uh, just to protect her confidentiality because it's quite a specific case but she had a very very advanced uh, cancer she was quite debilitated in the sense she she couldn't really move she was in a lot of pain and uh, we still I mean the physicians and the nurses and everyone in her family everyone was really like fighting kind of for a Hail Mary <laughs> just because of her age and everything and just how wonderful she was as a person and I spent um, two weeks, two to three weeks on night shifts straight with her. And I had her kind of every single night. And so at night, not always, but you do have a little bit more time sometimes to chat with patients. And at night, people often get a little bit more, they have more death anxiety. Emotions tend to run high at night. Thoughts, your thoughts tend to turn. So we had a lot of really good talks, you know, I would just kind of sit in her room with her and we'd talk about life. And she was an amazing person. Like she, she was so young, but so mature, so well-spoken. She taught me a lot about like life, living your life. And she was, she was amazing. And she ended up passing and she had a, a, a diffuser in her room that I like, I loved, like there was, it had all these colors and it, it always smelled so nice in her room. And after she passed, her dad came back to the unit to bring me um, a diffuser like she had as a gift. And he said that she'd wanted me to, to have it. And I still have it, you know, in my, in my living room. And she's one of the two patients uh, that I went to their funeral in a number of years. It's not something that's common practice, but I did go to her funeral and I went with another nurse who was with her a lot as well, a very a senior nurse, a wonderful person. So we, we went together to her funeral and we were sort of walking up to pay our respects. And as everyone was, we kind of took our turn. And when her family, her family was very, I would say stoic, like despite the circumstances and, you know, they seemed numb. They seemed quite numb with the, as, as I can, I can't imagine losing your daughter when she's 26. And they saw us, me and my colleague, and they just like lost it. They just broke down in our arms. And I think we were all crying. I was a mess. <laughs> I think that it just goes to show like how important that connection that we build is. And they saw, like, I think they were, they were crying because no one probably really understood what they were going through. They probably did not feel understood by many people. And I think that they knew that we understood, like we were there three o'clock in the morning when she was in pain and vomiting. And we were there like the whole time. And I, I think that 
oh, I love my job. <laughs> it's the worst job, but it's the best job ever. So yeah, that was, I think probably that's still, and this was, you know, six, six years, five years ago or something. And I still, I remember, I remember her name. I remember I will carry her. She was a wonderful person. So sweet. You're so, you're so kind and compassionate. I I see your struggle with the, with it being the best and the worst because when you connect with people, I feel like you do a better job. But when you connect with people, it's probably also harder when you when you lose a patient. Absolutely, absolutely. Like the like we talked about, like the highs are so high, but the the lows are quite low. Like I think nurses in general, or myself and many of my you know close nursing friends who are incredible nurses, they're empaths. You know, they I'm an empath. I feel what these patients are feeling. And that could, that brings me a lot of joy. And I think it's, it makes me a really good nurse because I push and I'm annoying with the doctors and I'm like, I'm pushing and I'm, and I, I really want to be there for them. And, and, and we laugh and we talk and we talk about life. And, but that also comes with kind of the, you know, you, you definitely do feel what they're feeling. So though that those are also some of the, the harder moments as well but it you know like not everything is perfect like it you the, the highs come with the lows as it does in everything in life I think so yeah yeah this brings me back to I think when I asked you in the beginning like how do you relax or decompress and so I guess this is where you, where your shower comes in where you can yeah. <laughs> cry or, <laughs> or be upset. yeah exactly that's where like the yoga comes in and the meditation yeah. and the the crying and the, the getting upset and the you know living living the emotion a little bit I mean you cannot be a nurse and sort of be dry and not I mean you can Pe- people are rare rare I, I the, the nurses that I work with are incredible incredible yeah do you have any closing thoughts Alexandra? I mean I don't know we talked about so many wonderful things thank you Nikita for kind of allowing me to to share sort of about my experience and to share about my passion for being a nurse it's not it's not a glamorous job it's a great great job and I think there's you know, there's a lot of things that still need to be fixed and worked on. And, you know, I think we touched on some of those. So thank you for giving me kind of this opportunity to talk about some of those things. And yeah, I just, I really appreciated this conversation with you. Thank you, Alexandra. I really appreciate the conversation. I really enjoyed learning about your experiences and some of the things that nursing entails and really just hearing your stories, your passion really shines through. So it was an absolute pleasure to have you at the Good Health Cafe today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nikita. It was really nice getting to know you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I find that Alexandra's passion for nursing really came through so brightly. She gave us some key takeaways, which included not being afraid to ask questions. Now, come on, who's told you that before? And she also mentioned to us the importance of being sure to grab your medication list if you can before you head to the hospital. I also really appreciated her clearing up what happens when you're on the transplant list because that Grey's Anatomy episode really scared me. So that was exciting to hear how that process works. As it relates to the medication list, I have created a downloadable medication list for you, and you can download it by going to the link in the show notes and clicking download your free medication list. So if you'd like to have one, there's one here in the show notes for you. I think it'll be a great resource. And thank you again to Alexandra for coming to share her remarkable stories with us. I hope you learned something from the episode. And until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.